Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. First off, I want to thank those of you who filled out the podcast survey. We're running the survey for a few more weeks, so there's still time to send us feedback. I'm also sending out Got Science stickers to those of you who fill out the survey and want one. Go to gotsciencepodcast.org. Today, we're hopping into the Wayback Machine to look at the science community in 1969. And Katie Love is back with This Week in Science History, so stick around after the interview for that. We live in troubling times for science and for those who care about facts and evidence. It can be difficult to broaden our perspective and see silver linings to our current reality. It can be even harder to find reasons to celebrate. But I'm going to try to give you both right now. Come back in time with me, 50 years ago, to 1969. The United States was enmeshed in a brutal and divisive war. The Cuyahoga River was on fire. There was no environmental protection agency. A president with a one-time 34% approval rating handed over the office to a guy who would in a few years be impeached. Back in those days, if you were training to become a scientist, conventional wisdom was that science was strictly an academic discipline and that scientists only cared about their work and were neutral on every other topic. It was normal for top performers to be recruited to work in the defense industry, creating deadlier and more precise weapons, and normal for them to accept. With very few exceptions, the idea that a scientist could also be an activist would have sounded as improbable as Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong planting a Soviet flag on the moon when they landed that year. 1969 was also the year that the Union of Concerned Scientists was founded. That's right, we're turning the big 5-0 this year. And it's worth it to remember how much has changed. In honor of our anniversary, I wanted to compare the mindset of the scientific community 50 years ago to the present and take stock of how the actions of March 4, 1969, marked a political awakening in the scientific community. So I took advantage of one of the many perks of my job and turned to a literal rocket scientist for help. David Wright is co-director of our Global Security Program and has a rare perspective on our milestone anniversary, being that he studied physics under one of our founders. He joined me to talk about how the Vietnam War led scientists to essentially go on strike, how the action mobilized the scientific community and led to the creation of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and how the world is a better place when scientists can speak their truths. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Nice to be here. Excited to talk about the beginnings of the Union of Concerned Scientists today. We're coming up on our 50th anniversary, so I thought we'd do a little bit of a historical podcast. To start, on March 4th, 1969, 50 years ago, there was an uprising of scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Can you tell me what was going on and what scientists were upset about? Sure. Not surprisingly, this started several years earlier because at MIT, as in a lot of other schools, uh, there was a lot of concern about the Vietnam War, about the uh, role that uh, the government was playing in, in continuing that war. At MIT, that played out in interesting ways. For example, DuPont, the chemical company, would 
come to MIT to recruit students. Well, DuPont is, was also the company that was making uh, napalm that was being used in Vietnam and that was really a, a, a concern that people had focused on. So students organized a, a boycott of, of the uh, DuPont recruiters. This was a couple years before that. So clearly, students were paying attention to, to the bigger set of issues. And sometime around the fall of 1968, a couple of physics graduate students, Joel Feigenbaum and Alan Chodos, were having dinner and got talking about uh, whether there was something more that, that they should be doing as scientists at MIT. And so they decided that they would try and draft a statement to see if they could get physicists at MIT to sign it uh, to basically talk about this set of issues. They uh, drafted something. They took it to Kurt Gottfried, who was a physics professor at Cornell, who was visiting for the year at MIT. He then sort of reworked it, uh, got some of the other physicists that he knew at MIT involved, and that was sort of the beginnings. People started thinking, yeah, we really should be doing and saying something about it and putting out a statement like this and thinking about what else we should be doing. Seems like a good start. What were some of the um, points in the statement? The statement uh, talked about the fact that science and technology was being uh, sort of dominated by military uses. And so a lot of it was talking about the fact that the scientific community uh, should be speaking out about these issues, should be trying to uh, think about how science and technology can be used most productively for society. And so they were both thinking about the bigger issue, the societal issue of, of how you spend your resources, what you use science and technology for, uh, but also focused on some of the specific uh, pieces that they saw coming down the line. How sophisticated were, were weapons at that point? In the 1960s, the United States and Soviets had developed long-range missiles to put nuclear warheads on. Both countries had some hundreds at that point probably of nuclear warheads that they could launch at the other country. What people were thinking about at that point was, uh, you know, is there a way to get out of this? Is there a way to get an advantage? So if we can make smaller warheads, then we could put more warheads on each missile. If we can build so-called MIRVing technology, then we can put more warheads on each missile and have each of those go after a different target. Uh, let's put missiles on submarines so that the other country doesn't know where they are, and so uh, we'll always have a, a secure uh, ability to retaliate. And so one of the results of that was that by the mid-1980s, uh, between the U.S. and Soviet Union, you had on the order of 65,000 nuclear weapons uh, that those countries had. And fortunately, that was the peak, and, and things have been coming down since then. But again, one of the one of the concerns about both building new offensive weapons and at that point they were beginning to talk about building defensive weapons was that the response of the other country was to simply build up its offensive weapons to, to counteract what advantage you might get out of that. And that's part of what caused the numbers to grow to such a high level. And it was really the advent of, of uh, arms control between the U.S. and Soviet Union where they started to understand more what the other side was going to do and not going to do, and uh, started to limit some of the technology that they were concerned about, that both countries were able to sort of back off of that and start to, to cut their arsenals. Tell me about MIRVs. What, what <laughs> are they, were they, and their significance? MIRV is an acronym, stands for Multiple Independently Retargetable Reentry Vehicle which is a mouthful to basically say that if you had a big missile that normally carried uh, one nuclear warhead, 
that this would allow you to put several smaller warheads on that same missile uh, to launch them toward the Soviet Union and then to independently target each of those warheads at a, at a different uh, target location. So this protest on March 4th, um, I don't want to overstate it by calling it a, a watershed moment. Maybe it was more of a milestone or a waypost um, for the scientific community. Scientists were not typically rising up and protesting like this. This was, this was something, this was somewhat of a new thing. Well, there certainly had been cases uh, in previous decades and even several years before where scientists had gotten involved. One that people, I think, are, are probably aware of is uh, in 1955, um, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein uh, released a manifesto that was signed by a number of famous scientists, basically calling on the governments of the world to, to try and deal with the, the looming nuclear weapons issue. Uh, a notable case was when the uh, U.S. government said it was going to start deploying missile defense sites around some large cities like Boston and Chicago and Seattle. Um, physicists in those cities started to uh, organize, get people information to, to protest them. And that, in fact, drew so much attention that it, it um, basically shut down uh, that proposal. So there were examples of that. But I think what was interesting about the MIT case was it really uh, moved beyond looking at particular systems and started to look at this bigger issue of the dominance of uh, funding, government funding for science and technology uh, for military purposes, uh, the, the idea of should uh, uh, campuses like MIT be so focused on government military funding, and were there kinds, were there, was there kind of work at, that shouldn't be done at, at universities? So one of the things that came out of this was they called for a work stoppage, which some people called a research strike, on March 4th. And the idea was to take classes that day and to use them to talk about not just the course material, but the societal implications of the material in the course of what it meant to be a scientist or an engineer, and to put on a, 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 a sort of a conference in the afternoon that had a number of panels with people talking about various aspects of that. Uh, as they started talking about it, somebody talked to a reporter at the New York Times, and in January of 1969, there was an article in the New York Times where it talked about a research strike in the title of it. And that, of course, made this issue much more polarized, because if you talk about a teach-in, that sounds pretty benign. If you talk about a research strike, that's a much more aggressive sort of thing. And, and that became... Uh, somewhat divisive at MIT between people who felt like, uh, you know, we, we well, some people felt like we need uh, to continue the military research that we're doing, and it's a good source of money, and we're the best people to be doing it. Some people simply felt that, um, and this sounds a little naive at this point, because it's many, you know, a lot of discussions have happened since then, but a lot of people at that point felt that science was an academic pursuit, that it was uh, apolitical, and that by raising these issues, people weren't talking about sort of implicit political issues, but were in fact politicizing science. And, and for people who felt that strongly, this seemed like just a, a very bad way to go forward. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. 
You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. And a reminder to fill out our feedback survey and get a Got Science podcast sticker. They're pretty cool. Now let's get back to our interview. So going back to the the protest on on March 4th, 1969, this was the beginning of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about that. So there's a, an MIT faculty group, and they called themselves the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? So just taking a step back, I had, uh, there was the original statement that was written was a joint student and faculty group. And, and they found that as time went on, as they were planning the events for March 4th, that the students and the faculty had somewhat different ideas of where they wanted to go and what they wanted to talk about and how radical they wanted to be. And so those two group, groups split. And the faculty group uh, called itself the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, one of the things they decided was that uh, both of these groups, the student and the faculty group, uh, would sort of have an equal part in designing the, the uh, parts of the teach-in on March 4th and designing various panels. And so the, the uh, faculty group, uh, under the name Union of Concerned Scientists, started having meetings uh, through the, uh, the winter of 1968-1969, uh, uh, inviting speakers, thinking about what they wanted to talk about, uh, doing those kinds of things. They also, uh, during that time, wrote the first paper that came out with the Union of Concerned Scientists name on it, uh, which was about the anti-ballistic missile debate. Uh, and that, that came out around the time of the, of the March 4th meeting. Uh, and it was followed not too long after that by a, a second technical paper on uh, biological and chemical weapons, which, interestingly enough, was headed by David Baltimore, who later won a Nobel Prize, very esteemed physicist. Uh, and part of what, what's interesting, if you look back at the history, is uh, between Harvard and MIT, there were a very large number of, of, of leading physicists and biologists and chemists. I mean, it was really an esteemed group. Uh, and part of what's interesting is that uh, these people seem so willing to take time out of their very busy schedules and work on this. And I think it's some indication that that there was really an awareness that something needed to be done, that there was a a concern about these issues, and that a lot of these people were were happy to see a way that they could get involved and talk about these things. And so that, I think, gave a lot of uh, emphasis and hope to the people who were were, uh, developing this whole, uh, the the teach-in, feeling like this is really something which is bigger than just uh, one day teaching, that, that, that we really should try to, to continue this. And I should just say that apparently uh, they, uh, people started contacting friends at other universities, and so there were about 30 universities across the country that, that had similar sorts of teachings on, uh, on March 4th. What followed was, as usually happens, uh, people get busy, they have to get back to their classes, and, and yeah, things, what do we do now? <laughs> things, things wound down. Uh, the, uh, there were several people um, at MIT, like, um, um, well, Kurt Gottfried was, uh, had gone back to uh, 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 Cornell at that point, but Henry Kendall was starting to work on these things. Um, and basically what happened was uh, during the 1970s then, 
Henry became uh, interested both in environmental issues. Well, I had long been in, interested in environmental issues, but was decided that it, it was good. It would be good to try and get uh, scientists to focus on those issues, uh, and also the nuclear power safety uh, debate. He he was had been alerted by some people to the fact that there were safety concerns. Uh, uh, potentially as as plants aged, but even with some of the safety systems they had. Uh, and that was really uh, one of the things that um, UCS really uh, grew on was was Henry's involvement in that. Uh, that led the uh, Henry and, a, and two other people actually to uh, start doing a lot of technical work, to um, start advising members of Congress, to doing press conferences, People were hearing about it. There was uh, support for that kind of work. Uh, and, you know, toward the end of the 1970s, once Three Mile Island happened, uh, really focused um, uh, people's concerns about, about some of these safety issues. Uh, and it was not long after uh, UCS had released a, a report talking about the safety concerns of Three Mile Island and a couple other plants. And so I think, I think again, what it did was it helped people see uh, a way for them to get involved and focus on some of these issues that uh, that they were con- had been concerned about for a long time. So, David, you've been with the Union of Concerned Scientists for more than half of UCS's existence, um, and I know you took a few courses as a grad student with Kurt Gottfried. Um, Tell me one thing that, that surprises you when you look back on this history of the Union of Concerned Scientists and one thing that you, you think the organization is uniquely positioned to take on in the years and decades ahead. Well, to some extent, I, I would combine those two because I think the thing that surprised me is also one of the things that I think is its strength. Um, there's a there's a tendency of scientists who are who have not been involved in in policy issues before to think that the real problem is a lack of knowledge or a lack of education, and that what we need to do is inform people. And if you so, just explain it to them, they'll get it. And it's interesting to read some of uh, Henry Kendall's uh, discussion of some of the his early involvement with the nuclear power safety issue. They went into that assuming that that was the was the the case. There's also a tendency to think that, and it goes along with that, this idea of talking truth to power that the truth will will you know eventually win the day. Uh, I tend to subscribe much more to something that uh, Frank von Hippel, a professor at uh, Princeton who's long been involved in these issues, talks about, which is he, he talks about that it's important to have activists and analysts working together. And you, you need a solid basis for uh, what you're putting into the debate and what you're saying, but you also need to figure out how to get people to listen, uh, how to get things in the press, uh, how to create political pressure. So I think one of the surprising things to me about UCS that I've, I've told people for many years is that from the very beginnings, uh, it was designed to have sort of a balance between analysts and outreach people who worked uh, to reach the public, to, to reach uh, people in Congress, uh, media people to get, to get the uh, word out. And so it really, I think, from the very beginning uh, had this quality of, of trying to do multiple pieces. And, and as I look around, I think there's a lot of organizations that do one or two of those things very well. But I'm, I'm really impressed that from the very beginning, uh, UCS has, has 
had that as part of, of, of its view of itself, that, that's, that it's recognized the importance of that. And I think that's going to, you know, um, continue to be useful going forward. Uh, the, the other thing that I think is going to be useful going forward is that UCS has tended to uh, pick hard problems and stick with them. So things like missile defense, nuclear weapons, climate change. Uh, and I think that's important because these are issues that, that need people to continue to work on them. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's tried to be flexible enough to begin working on, on new issues that are, that are important. And, and one of those that came up was concerns about scientific advisory panels being politicized. And uh, especially uh, under the, the George W. Bush administration, that became a, a much more common practice. And UCS began working on that, trying to, to talk about why that was a bad idea, try to work with Congress to, to get some of those practices changed. Uh, so again, I think it's this combination of, of focusing on things, sticking with them, but also having the flexibility to be able to pick up new issues that, that we wouldn't have thought about 50 years ago. So David, if March 4th, 1969 hadn't happened at MIT, what do you think you'd be doing now? Very interesting question. Um, I actually got involved in this uh, separate from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and it was around the, the uh, Star Wars debate back in the 1980s. Now, I have to say, though, that part of what I think allowed me to do that was I was a graduate student at Cornell at the time, and I think th at that point, people believed that it was a legitimate thing for scientists to be talking about these issues. And it was an interesting place to be a graduate student because Hans Bethe, who was head of the theoretical division of the Manhattan Project was there, and, and typically he would start the, the physics seminars out by talking about some aspect of policy that he had been working on. And he was clearly a great physicist who had been involved in these things for a long time. Uh, Robert Wilson, the head of the experimental division at the Los Alamos Project, was also there, and he had also been long involved in these issues. Kurt Gottfried was there. So I think there was a sense that um, for people who saw these issues is interesting that it was a legitimate thing to be spending your time on. And I think that's, I think it's hard to understate how important that is for people to realize that you can, you can pull your head up away from your research and, and pay attention to these things. Uh, and so once the uh, Star Wars debate started, a group of us at Cornell uh, started looking both at some of the technical issues uh, of the, of the, uh, of the plan but also started looking at the way that the missile defense agency at that point the, was trying to uh, gather both congressional and public support. And part of what they said they were trying to do uh, was to get universities across the country to take money for the Star Wars program as a way of them being able to say, see, we, you know, we've got the best scientists and engineers working on this. So that uh, got us thinking, and we decided in, uh, I guess, in 1984, to organize a, a boycott of Star Wars funding and to have uh, scientists and engineers across the country say that they would refuse to solicit or accept money from uh, the Star Wars organization. Now, again, that seemed to me to sort of have, uh, you know, an echo of March 4th because it was a, a boycott of, of, of taking research funding, which I don't think had, had been done before. Uh, and it, it attracted a lot of attention because it was a very strong statement. And part of what that did, because uh, it, it got into the press, we organized press conferences, we, we did a lot of the things that I think people like Henry and, and Kurt and others had realized you needed to combine with technical analysis. 
by getting in the, in the press, we were not only able to uh, illustrate uh, the strong feeling of the scientific community that this was a bad idea and technically unworkable, uh, but also gave them a, a, a format, a forum to go out and talk about why it was a problem. And so I think, again, it was, it was the sense of taking a, a strong stand, only I think it was easier for us because of the work that people like Kurt and Henry had done before that sort of legitimized the idea of scientists taking uh, strong stands in, in policy issues. So really a, a scientist activist at heart. Well, that's what I like to think I am. It's part of why I like being at UCS. Well, David, thank you for, uh, for joining me. It's been really great to be here. It's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science History, we're going back to February 27, 1813, when Congress passed legislation to address smallpox. With a mortality rate ranging as high as 60% at the time, the development of a vaccine for smallpox in 1796 was welcomed by many. Unfortunately, unscrupulous entrepreneurs capitalized on the high demand by offering fraudulent versions of the vaccine. At the time, there was no such thing as a Food and Drug Administration to protect consumers. Instead, the U.S. government took what many consider to be its first step in taking responsibility for public health when Congress passed the Vaccine Act of 1813 which created a national vaccine agency to ensure legitimate vaccines and provided for free shipping of vaccine materials through the U.S. Postal Service. For nearly another century, smallpox remained the only disease for which a vaccine existed. As scientists researched vaccines for other diseases, they came to understand community immunity, also called herd immunity, the effect that immunizing many members of a community has in protecting others who lack immunity. Citizens and policymakers, meanwhile, wrangled over science-informed initiatives in order to strike an acceptable balance between improvement in public health and protection of individual civil liberties. In 1855, for example, vigorous debate attended Boston's passage of the first law in the United States requiring children to be vaccinated before they could attend public school. Today, vaccines are available to protect the public from more diseases than ever before. Although our scientific knowledge about vaccines has increased vastly since the nation's earliest days, some now question the science supporting the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, which is ironic given the fact that vaccines have eliminated or nearly eliminated some of the most serious diseases our ancestors suffered, including smallpox. Some also question whether government-mandated vaccines serve the interests of both public health and personal freedom. For these reasons, current U.S. vaccine policies should be understood and discussed within the proper historical context. If we choose to ignore or reject the centuries of scientific evidence and science-based policies supporting vaccination, we risk reversing many of the hard-won gains we have made over disease in the past. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. 
special thanks to Dr. David Wright. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come join the conversation on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.